And then about after half an hour, they play the We Are The Champions. And I remember standing in the middle of the ground, just a little bit of solitude. You feel like joining in and starting singing the song because that's the moment you're the champions. everyone and welcome once again to At The G. I'm Anthony Hudson and in this grand final week it's our pleasure to bring you the second part of the MCG story of the great Lee Matthews. This time his September deeds as a coach. In the first episode we revisited his exploits as one of the greatest players of all time which saw him win four premierships on the MCG and quite incredibly and unusually he was able to do the same as a coach. How many? Ronald Dale. Well, Ronald Dale was a workmanlike player, as good as he was. Ted Whitten and probably John Coleman, maybe Malcolm Blight. So I'm struggling to get five what you and I would call champion players as half-reasonable coaches. And I must admit I was pleasantly surprised, but surprised that Lee became an incredibly good coach. That's the voice of the legendary David Parkin, Lee's former teammate and coach at Hawthorne. Coming up, we'll chat with Lee about the historic 1990 win at the helm of Collingwood and then the amazing Brisbane Lions three-peat, including what caused him to scold his players in the aftermath of victory. There was just a little bit of not being humble about him. I just had a fairly harsh words. That was probably my most aggressive (laughs) conversation with him and it was uh, four days after winning a grand final. And before we finish, we'll also get a glimpse into Lee's special relationship with his co-commentators in his stint in the Channel 7 commentary box on Friday Night Football. He's got a great football mind and, you know, he's pragmatic. He can get to the bottom line quicker than anyone I know. He gets rid of a lot of the noise and he's a great friend to me. I think it's that one word, trust. Well, at the end of episode one, we heard how, at the conclusion of his playing days, Lee was offered an assistant coaching role at Collingwood as part of a succession plan to take over from Bobby Rose and how that escalated quickly. So let's pick up the story that led to coaching greatness. As history would tell us, uh, Hutto, after round three of 1986, Collingwood lost the first three games. And again, things stick in your mind. I got a phone call about 7.30 the following morning, picked up the phone. It's Bob Rose. And he just said, simple words, Lee, I think it's time you took over. And of course, what happened that week is that Collingwood was found to almost be bankrupt. And in terms of the set deal for them to continue on, it was a new chairman, a new CEO, 
a new football manager, which is Graham Allen, who was the, ended up being the footy manager for the whole time I coached both at Collingwood and the Lions, and a new senior coach myself. So there was a massive changeover at Collingwood uh, when, when I became senior coach, but it was after round three of 1986. So you can imagine that happening. It'd be pretty headlines if a club had that those four roles changed somewhere during the season, Hutto. Did you draw up a coaching philosophy? You mentioned the three incredible coaches you'd had. Yes. Did you draw up a philosophy consciously or just kind of go, well, this is how I think it should be done? A little bit of that, but how you think it should be done is based on John Kennedy, the team first approach and, and the investment in the team that John lived. I mean, yeah, okay, you're trying to put that into place. David Parkin introduced like just a simple review of the game before you moved on to the following week's game, which didn't, you know, that that was new in, in the late 70s. And, and Alan Jeans, uh, I think, probably that got, got the changing direction out of defence into open space. The ball movement uh, philosophy got us running. And, and I so I, all the things that you've learnt become what you believe in. The training drills that Alan Jeans used to do with us in the, you know, in, in before I went to Colling were probably the main drills that we would start off with. Again, we're still part-time footy, so you're only training Tuesday, Thursday, a little bit of, of when Wednesday night, you haven't got a whole lot of time with the players. So coaching is much more basic back then than it was in the current uh, full-time era. So, uh, yeah, I, and Alan Jeans it was a, a mentor to so many people, but Alan Jeans was, was always only a phone call away if you had anything you wanted to bounce off him. And uh, I suspect if you could say, except when we played Hawthorne, because he was still coaching Hawthorne, he was almost my assistant coach, I think, in really? my first few years. Yeah, yeah so you, you did still speak to him a lot, did you? Oh, a lot, yeah, a lot, a lot of things. And even, even up until the grand final day and when we eventually uh, we got into the grand final in 1990 and, and I remember Alan Jean suggest, said to me, he said, one of the things he said doesn't work too bad, he said in the police force because he was a police sergeant, yeah. they got a, a certain task, you know, they'll call it they'll call it something, uh, we called our task in, uh, in 1990 when we we're going to the grand final, Operation Tackle because right. if there was two bits of advice Alan, George, Alan Jeans gave me when I first coached, two simple bits of advice he said, mate, get them tackling and the morning after selection, win the president and talk to him about the team. <laughs> they were his two basic, which still stand to this day, I suspect. Like, in other words, manage up. Yes. Make, make sure the bloke who's running the club understands what your thinking is, what your rationale is. But from a playing point of view, uh, it, you know, the ball sports are all the same. Like the old, uh, you've got it, they've got it, yep. or there's a contest to be won. The point being, everyone wants to win the contest. Everyone likes having ball in hands, but you've got to make yourself chase and tackle and pressure. And uh, the old thing, Hutto, if you get the hard things done, it's amazing how the easier things will actually come a little bit by natural progression. So so that even even when we went into the uh, yeah the 1990 uh, grand final, uh, a suggestion from Alan Jeans formed part of the way we tried to uh, yeah, set up the, uh, again, I was, I was a kiss coach, keep it simple, stupid coach. I never <laughs> tried to actually be too complicated. It's one of the half a dozen things that players uh, just were, were drilled into them time like the dripping tap. So uh, now Alan Jeans was enormous value to me in my first, uh, first few years of coaching Collingwood. And you mentioned 1990. I mean, so much around that. You had yeah. the Sumich, the draw, which Essendon players still talk yep. about that upset yep. them in the lead and they had to wait an extra week. And Alan Richardson with the fitness test. There was lots going into that grand final, apart from obviously the pressure of, of Collingwood looking to get over the famous Collie Wobbles. Well, it was interesting, that one. I mean, the footy club, I mean, really, you know, the footy, Collingwood's got 
hundreds, hundred thousand members, like whatever. Uh, Collingwood's a really big club, a big support base, but a footy club essentially, in a, every club has got you know forty odd players, and back in those days it was mainly volunteers. But you'd have a dozen people sort of helping run the footy department, and and to be honest, you you've got to uh, remove yourself from the um, emotional attitude of fans. I mean, in terms of the being able to do your best to compete and give you the self the best chance of winning, you know, the the passion of the fans is great, but there's not quite a whole lot of logic in it, to be honest. I mean, because it's either win or lose, you know, the, the process that you're going under. So I, I, I think we deliberately try to remove ourselves from that, that kind of... Uh, the Collie Wobbles, for instance. Yep. I mean, the fact... We, everyone knew the history of Collingwood up and from 58 to 90, played in nine grand finals and lost all nine. So there was kind of a history. You get to the end, but you wouldn't be able to get over the line on the final day. And, yeah, there's a lot of pressure on that if you want to stick it in your mind, but that was something we just had to leave out of our thinking. It was all about Operation Tackle in the end, but these are the things that we need to do to play our best. But And... That September 1990 proved, Hutto, the thing that uh, it's, it doesn't matter how well you play in the previous six months, it's how well you play in the last few games and then the final game and that draw against the Eagles, which could have gone either way. Peter Sumich had the shot at goal, of course, and yep. we, were, we were point in front. He didn't kick the goal, he kicked the point, so it was a draw. Hey, but for us, the Eagles had to go back to Perth and fly back to Melbourne the following week back in those days. Yeah. Uh, so we had the enormous advantage. So we, we were able to say, listen, hey, hey nothing lost here. We're going to be better off next week than, than they are. And we made a few adjustments to the, to the team. And then we beat uh, the Eagles easily the following week. And then Essen in the second semi-final. And then eventually Essen in the grand final. And, you know, it, one little stat that I think the team's enormously proud of, in those three games, the opposition didn't score a goal in the last quarter. Right. So our team, we, we tried to just, after that Eagles draw, we tried to speed up the team best we could with what you got available. And they had a fantastic three weeks. And we could never back it up as well in the following years. But I tell you what, the last couple of weeks of uh, September 1990, that Collingwood team, they, they were pretty good. They were pretty good. Led magnificently by Tony Shaw. <laughs> One thing you know as a coach, you're just dependent on the players. All you can do is try and set it up, train them right, all that kind of stuff. Ultimately, the, the players actually either do it or, or don't do it. And, and Tony Shaw was a magnificent uh, captain. And Peter Dacos was a genius up forward. You know, you had Gavin Brown and Gavin Krasiska and uh, Darren Mullane and Mick McGuan. I mean, they, we had a lot of good players, but the team reached a peak in that last couple of weeks of September. And that's the way you win a premiership. And you didn't want the rooms all dressed up in Collingwood colours like had previously been done. A few people had mentioned that. Well, it's been, always been my attitude that part of what you have to do on Grand Final Day is lessen the hype. Because, Fenningham, if you're not hyped for Grand Final Day, then you're never going to be hyped. So you run onto the ground and 100,000 people cheer. So try to actually, as much as you can, keep it a little bit more normal up until that point and therefore having all streamers and balloons in the in the dressing room seemed to me to go completely against that thought that control under pressure is what you're looking for so you don't want to you want to be trying to remove any anything that might just create a little bit more tension or create a little bit more nervousness or you know like why we got the rooms dressed up today well, oh, geez, it must be a big game. We've got the wounds dressed up. You know, so, hey, little things. Uh, the coaching decision-making is a whole lot of little things, and that was just one thing that I guess all while well, I coached the Lions later on, that eventually the same principle, we never dressed up the rooms. That wasn't what we wanted to be doing on, on grand final day. I mentioned the um, the selection issues you had, and yes. you never seemed to have a great difficulty in just making a pretty cool, hard decision on those things. No, nah, team come first. 
Yeah. We're all subservient to the team cause. And if anyone believes that it's the coach, doesn't mean you don't have empathy for individuals. But if you don't do what's best for the team, you're just not doing your job. That's it, bottom bottom line. And we did have some difficult things. I mean, poor old Ronnie McEwen, who played full back. When we played Essendon, Paul Salmon was, of course, the 200 centimetre plus full forward. And Ronnie was, you know, 190 centimetres thereabout. And we, we kind of thought that uh, Michael Christian was a better matchup for Paul Salmon. So. In the end, uh, Ronnie lost his position in the team when he played fullback for the majority of the year. I mean, it's just really cruel because one of the cruel, other cruel things about Grand Final Day, there's always a 23rd or 24th player. Like players who are just about in the premiership team but didn't get there on the Grand Final Day. That's that's really cruel. They might be happy for their mates, but they're they're cruel inside. I mean, so that's that's really tough. And I guess one of the big ones, Alan Richardson broke his collarbone in the second semi-final. Now, two weeks later, we're playing the grand final, and, and he, but he, he seemed to be doing most of the training. I just thought, how can this be happening? He broke his collarbone. I guess I had the feeling that, well, what has to happen is uh, Richo either have to break down at training or be okay. In other words... It can't be allowed to break down in, in a grand final because that just kills us. We're one man short. So, yeah, the fitness test, I was a bit younger, but it was only for five years post-playing, I suppose. So I, I was involved in giving a fairly physical uh, fitness test to Richo. And, uh, it was that, again, it was a game, there was probably 10,000 people there watching that Thursday night training. And I think when we started to do a little bit of physical bumping, I'm sure they were barricading for Richo, not me. <laughs> and, it, and, it, and he still looked like he'd st- survived. But then by the following morning, he said, no, I can feel it. I know it's not right. And he sort of, you know, great man, Alan Richardson, said, listen, no, no, it just no point doing another fitness test. I, I, I know it's not right. So he he eventually made the call. But, you know, again, the the worst thing for in, in that situation is you always take a little bit of punt about fitness, but you you, you do your best to make sure that uh, that they, uh, they're, gonna, they're not going to break down early in the game. Um, that's That's part of the coaching responsibility. And then the match itself, um, Salmon was a threat. You talked about him. Dakes took that great goal. You're yep. up at quarter time. There was the big scuffle. Terry Danaher was the villain. Gavin Brown, of course, went off. Now, at halftime, as they went down the race, you, you said something to, to TD, didn't you, as he, as he was going down the race? Yeah, we all do stupid things, and this was the most stupid thing I've ever done, to be honest. And I'm lucky it just didn't play it. Like, there was the brawl at quarter time. When you're talking a brawl, it yeah. was a brawl. Yeah. I mean, and it looked like half the officials were fighting too. It just it looked like the whole ground was brawling at quarter time, and I wasn't involved in that. And, of course, Gavin Brown got knocked out. Now he would have been out of the game with concussion, undoubtedly. But in those days, you'd wait to see what happened. Anyway, he was off the ground. At quarter time, of course, the big challenge is to make sure the umpire are going to be nervous because they know there's a bit of a passion, you know, in both sides. We actually kicked five goals in the second quarter, so we got we got the break, got a couple of 50 meter penalty goals, and I must say that as the siren went for half time, I thought, how can I use Gavin Brown because he might might not be able to use him as a player. Now Terry Danaher is a great fella. But everyone does stuff on the field that you think, oh, why do I do that? You know, and I reckon Terry might have been thinking that. So I walked Gavin over, and he was still a bit zonky, but I just walked him over. And the two races were alongside each other, of course, in the old Northern Stand before it was redeveloped. And there's a big wire fence that runs up between the two rooms. And I stood outside our rooms, and as as Terry approached, I think I just uh, just had Gavin by one arm and said, oh, Terry, we'll be back to get you. I, I just... I had this stupid thought of trying to see if I could actually put a little bit of guilt onto uh, onto Terry. But then I was smart enough to walk up the race. 
So the abuse that was coming back after after my starting point was through the fence. So there was no physical contact. But I, I look back on that, Hutto, and I thought, I know why I did it at the time, but it was the most stupid thing to do. Could you imagine if that had just exploded? Yeah. It just was a stupid thing to do. Oh, well, as you said, you got their minds back on the job, though, didn't you, at quarter time, and, and you went on to win that game. So what was it like then as a coach? You'd experienced it four times as a player. What Was it better or is it impossible to compare? Uh, better as a coach. I, mean, I've, I, I feel I only coached because I couldn't play any longer. Like Playing was the thing for me. But when you get to grand final day, you still got your own performance going on in and around the team performance. I mean, that's just how playing works. So, yeah, yeah, you want to win, but you want to play well yourself. That's the kind of thing. Now, as a coach, the only thing you got is the team performance. You're doing your best to get the best out of your team. But, hey, there's no such thing as a supreme coaching god who you can report into and ask them that question. Am I getting the most out of my team? No one can, can tell you that. So, basically, that the proof comes in the uh, performance. So on that grand final day, and I can quite remember it late in the game, I, again, there's how many goals in front are we, uh, how many minutes there is to go. We were getting into about the 25-minute mark of the last quarter. I think we were maybe seven goals in front. And I still remember it just in front of the, the in the uh, the old member stand it was, uh, and the coaching box was just up in that uh, underneath that old the member stand uh, before the redevelopment. And I still remember Tony Shaw turned inside onto his left foot, chipped the ball over to Damien Monkhurst just about 40 metres out and Dame, big Damien Monkhurst went back and kicked the goal. We're now eight goals in front with a few minutes to go. That was the moment for me. Right. I thought, we can't lose now. So I said, let's go down and enjoy it. So went down to the bench, which is only just, just walked down the stairs at, at, at that point and sit on the interchange bench with the players that were there. I think Craig Starsevich might have been there, there at the time. Jimmy Manson might have been. But And then as that happened this last couple of minutes of the game that Collingwood Collingwood echoed around started to echo around the stadium I'll talk about hairs on the back of the next half Hutto it was just a fantastic moment leading into the final siren and the uh, and ultimately going and getting a premiership cup Darren Mullane can still speed down the flank and he marks with a broken thumb he will feel no pain tonight this will be probably the last kick Celebrations begin. Alan McAllister and Lee Matthews. Well, they've worked so hard. Lee Matthews' rebuilding program is waving to the crowd, and with him is his inspirational skipper, Tony Shaw. And then the party started from a Collingwood point of view, didn't it, from all the fans and we talked about the collie wobbles and all that sort of stuff. So what was it like in the week after? And you mentioned you weren't really able to follow it up as a team for the next few years. Was it just such a big achievement that the, the boys had trouble getting back to that level, And you think? Possibly. I mean, this was, it's always hard to know the whys and wherefores of, of, of these things. Uh, uh, yeah, well, I mean, the post game, I mean, the post game at the, the MCG, one can remember it. There is something just I, I got to look forward to, and I don't know whether it happened in 90 or it's more the Lions ones, but after playing the on repeat, as the players walk their, you know, their lap, nowadays and sort of joining the crowd, show them the cup and the and the theme song is being replayed over repeat for about half an hour. And then about after half an hour, to finish that off, they play the We Are the Champions. Yeah. Uh, 
And I remember, not sure if it was 90 or later on, the, but standing in the middle of the ground, just a little bit of solitude when that you feel like joining in and starting singing the song because that's the moment. Yeah, at the moment, you're the champions. Then the aftermath of Victoria Park. I reckon it was 30,000 people at Victoria Park that night. It was like a rock concert. There was just, it was just massive. So, uh, But that's when you now you can join in with the fans. Uh, you remove yourself from the fans a little bit in the way, the attitude and the way you have to go about it. But once the siren goes and you win, well, then you join the fans. That's when it's, it's fantastic to so many people who are joined the moment. And Darren Mullane, who'd been incredibly courageous in that final series, uh, yes. is how he played with the, the hand injury and then obviously had the tragic aftermath. But just, just a word on Darren, I suppose, and what he was able to achieve. Well, that was amazing that year. He broke his thumb in the second last game and uh, you know, he's going to be in plaster for six weeks. That's just virtually the end of his finals campaign. I, I remember he came to me that for late that following week, about the Thursday it would have been after he broke his thumb. He said, listen, I've been to uh, John Bartlett, who was our orthopedic surgeon. He says he thinks he can strap it up and inject it so that I can probably play with it. I said, okay. Uh, so on that Thursday night, we did that, and I gave him a bit of a, fitness test I must admit I thought well maybe you can play with half a hand if you don't have moon. if you you can't run you've got no chance but maybe if you just can't uh, handle the ball as cleanly with one hand then you well you might be able to get through so I gave I did give him a pretty soft fitness test and he passed <laughs> Rules it for some that's right but then but he was able to play the last game so he was able to actually before we got to finals he was able to prove that he actually could play and but what people didn't see I mean I he probably really broke it every game for about five or six weeks. And post-game, when the painkillers wore off, he was almost in agony with the aching thumb. He could hardly hardly put his hand through his shirt to get his shirt back on. I mean, basically, that. so going through that cycle of pain, like, in other words, you could, might be able to do it once, but he did that for five weeks where he actually basically injected himself up. But when the, when the injection wears off post-game, then, then the pain really hits you. And uh, he's a very, very strong man, very strong mind, very good player, but a very strong mind. And not too many people I've ever come across would probably have just had that mental strength to be able to play through that uh, through that cycle that Darren Malone did. And not only that, even though he didn't have great ball handling, because he was sort of, he, he, one hand had to be, that was his left hand, he was mainly actually uh, using his right hand. His finals campaign was as good as he's played because he did sometimes as a player try things that were a little bit outside playing the percentages, as I would say. But he, he played within limitations because he knew he had to with that sore thumb. He was an amazing contributor, not only out there, an amazing contributor playing with a broken thumb. As we mentioned, Lee's Collingwood team was unable to replicate their 1990 form. And despite the promises of President Alan McAllister, he eventually parted ways with the Pies. But in time, he was drawn back to coaching again, this time with the Brisbane Lions. Uh, when I finished at Collingwood in, in 95, 10 years later, as you know, Hutto, I was appointed coach for life and sacked five years later. That's, <laughs> how, foot, that's how footy worked. Um, I thought, oh, yeah, I, I might coach again. But I, again, I've been, I was lucky because I knew I, I was able to go and earn a living doing media work. Yep. So I had something to go to again. And then by 96, 97, by the time it got into 98, I was now three years out of it, I probably would have thought, oh, no, my coaching days are finished. I mean, because you can only get out of club level for a 
few years tops in my view. And I got asked to uh, about the Fremantle job about well, halfway through 1998. Not even had a conversation with with the Fremantle people, but never, it ne- never got past that. And and then about a month from the season, uh, I was asked, uh, was I interested in coaching the Brisbane Lions? And I shifted about 15 kilometres in my first 45 years. So going 3,000 k's, going to another state was a was a gigantic decision. Apart from just coaching again. Mm. I always think of coaching, and I, I and I even now I I found when I when I haven't coached, the whole lifestyle of coaching is demanding. It's like the double-sided coin. On on one side you got this euphoria and exhilaration potentially, but on the other side you got the pressure and the stress, and you can't have one without the other. Yeah. They they they're both there, and and saying yeah, no, I'm prepared to actually chuck myself into the pressure and the stress is part of what each coach has to come to terms with, and decide to do but were you good at that were you good at coping with that I think so but you always felt it now I mean it was always it's always a chore because that's that's just it it's just there you've got to feel totally responsible for what happens with the team logically you're not it's ridiculous to think the senior coach is responsible for everything the team does but you've got to believe that so everything you do every decision you make you have to believe is going to help the team and the individuals uh, to be better but you know you lose every third week in my footy life I've been involved a bit over 800 games and uh, 12 grand finals and eight premierships fantastic still lose every third week (laughs) That's the best it gets. Never gets any better than that. Coaches, any of it, players, any any better. Joel Selwood at Geelong might have uh, broken this a bit, but recently. But mostly, you lose every third week. So it's all part of it. Is you lose a lot, in other words. But after a while, I uh, thought about it, and then basically decided to well, what I call accept the challenge. You know, you, you eventually say, yeah, I'm going to accept the challenge, and I'm going to have a go at it. And uh, and that was uh, that was what happened late in uh, in '98. Well, it turned into an incredible year, as we know, with three premierships and a, a runners-up in 2004. In 2001, the whole predator but bleed, you can kill it, which was round 10 and gave your players belief. Were you thinking ahead that you had a team that could win a premiership at that stage? And obviously Essendon was the dominant team of the year until then. So were you already thinking that you could get this team to be the major competitor to the Bombers at that stage? Uh, not even a consideration. I mean, the one thing I'm good at is living in the moment. And living in the moment is what I've got to do today and tomorrow and in footy, next week's game, in the finals now, you've got to stay alive. I mean, basically, can I, once you get into knockout finals, can you stay alive? I'm never thinking a week ahead, I tell you. I guarantee that. Uh, and I don't think any competitor can, to be honest. But in my time at the Lions, we actually finished third in, in 99. We had a really good year from 90, uh, in the, my first year there. So the, the new regime of people that came in up to, to support the players at that point, because they're now in full-time footy. Like our football department back then, Hutto, was a dozen people, full-timers. Mm. All the players were now full-timers. That that was different than it was when I when I coached uh, Collingwood. So I had a really good year in 99. We flattened off and finished fifth or sixth. We're around the mark in 2000. And we going into 2001 with four wins, five losses when we played Essendon, I think, in round, would have been round 10. And two weeks previously, Hutto, we'd got beaten by 80 points by Carlton in yeah, Melbourne. Yeah, I remember That's that. That's how we were, we were terrible. <laughs> 
so we weren't thinking premierships then, I can tell you. We were thinking, how the hell could we just be competitive? We just got beaten by the Crows the following week at the Gabba. And then we played Essendon. And Essendon, as you know, they were the champion team at that point. Like from 99 through 2000, 2001, Essendon were just outstanding, almost unbeatable. But yeah, the Predator line was just a line that I thought was appropriate for that particular week and that particular occasion. It probably makes little difference to it. There are all the themes that uh, come post Contest, Hutto Grand Finals, mostly the losing team's got a theme too. It's just no one ever takes any notice of the losing team's theme. <laughs> so the Predator theme was well publicised, but we, 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 we had a good day against Essendon that day. So we beat Essendon, and would you believe we started a 20 consecutive wins run? Yeah. I mean, I started to think maybe we wouldn't lose every third week, Hutto, but uh, <laughs> eventually that, that so, and that the 16th uh, win in a row was obviously the Grand Final in, uh, in 2001. And looking back on that press conference, the reports of it, you and Sheeves, but you didn't look at him. So was there mind games going on leading in? Can you remember? Well, not at that point. I mean, that was the pre- that was the Friday press conference yep. you would be referring to there. No, the only mind games I did play a little bit is I, early in the week. I mean, we're the, the like we're the invaders. We're going back to the MCG. Yeah, that's it's in the centre of Melbourne. Essendon's a Melbourne team. And I think at one point, Sheeds in uh, in that early week build-up might have said, oh, the whole of Melbourne will be barracking for us because we're the Melbourne team. And I did point out that anyone who doesn't barrack for Essendon won't be barracking for Essendon <laughs> this week, I can guarantee you. And I said, ah, oh, that's just Sheeds thinking with the left side of his brain all the time, you know, or something like that. Yep. I, I deliberately did that because whenever you do a press conference, mainly you're talking to your players because they'll hear they'll hear the themes of what you may have said. And what I guess I was saying, hey, listen, we're, they're not the big boys we're taking on. Hey, we're as good as them. We're not we're not subservient to any team. There's been no team out of, at that point, Sydney or Brisbane, that had won the premiership. But just because it's Essendon and it's in Melbourne, don't feel that we're the invaders that are attacking the castle. You know, we're, we're as good as they are. We'll take them on. And it was a really hot day, and they were a bit banged up. I was actually on the boundary that day. I remember Lynch's goal yes. before half time, which I think cut the margin to 16. It just felt so critical. Did you sort of feel that way, that even though you were behind at half time, there was a number of elements that were kind of going to be in your favour? Yeah, well, they, they got us early. I made a couple of mistakes in positioning. We started uh, Justin Lepich at centre half back, and I thought Chris Scott, because uh, Scott Lucas is a fairly mobile centre half forward, Chris might be a good matchup for him. But between them, they were a little bit, a little bit small. We had Mel Michael, who normally played fullback on the bench. So maybe quarter time thereabouts. But Mel went on and then took on Matthew Lloyd, who had a really good day. And Leper went out to centre-half back on Lucas and, and Chris sort of shifted over to a back flank. And I thought our defence was a, a little bit better after that. But I remember just before half-time, yeah, what you, the incident you're referring to, we're 20 points behind. So we, you know, you get 26 points behind. All of a sudden, you're four and a half goals. And uh, then late in that second quarter, uh, Simon Black, turned onto his uh, right foot, his non-dominant side, and hit up a short lead to, to Lynchy, who from 40 metres kicks, handled the pressure, kicks straight, and we're now 14 points behind. And I, I think we always had a great belief at that point that we could run games out really strongly. We, we didn't have any injury concerns going in that I, I was aware of, to be honest. So And it was a warm day, which would accentuate fatigue factor. So I think at half time we're 14 points behind. But when you were in the game, that, that's all you really know, we're in the game. Had a good third quarter. 
and that's where that we established a bit of a lead. And I guess it's things that you remember, Hutto. I remember we uh, might have been Luke Power, might have been who who kicked the goal. Anyway, we kicked someone kicked the goal, put us thirty eight points in front halfway through the last quarter, something like that. And I started to relax. I think thirty eight points. Shit, we should have them now because <laughs> And then the ball went down the other end, and in about a minute, Scott Lucas kicked two goals. And we're, we're now only 26 points in front. And as it turned out, that was the margin. Of course, I don't think anyone scored after that. So we sort of we hung on in a sense. Um, and Alistair Lynch had the ball when the, when the siren rent went, and it was, uh, yeah, that magic, uh, the magic grand final winning feeling. Got a chance to feel it again. It was magnificent. Did straight away you think you had a team that was capable of hanging around for a few years and maybe winning again? And I don't think that the boys, you didn't let them enjoy it for too long. Well, well, I, I, I always had the thought that just had the demographics of our team as I saw it, that I always thought we had growth in us to be better than we would have been in 2001, just on players and age and, and experience and, and all those kinds. Like Jonathan Brown, for instance, where there was only he was only in his second year yeah. in, in 2001. But I mean, basically, it's I, I guess it's like uh, that living in the moment. Enjoy it. Go and enjoy the win. Celebrate with the Fitzroy, ex-Fitzroy supporters, the Lions supporters in Melbourne on the Sunday morning at the Bruntrick Street Oval. Come back and did a uh, street parade, which is something I'd never been involved in before, of course, in, in a Melbourne team's premiership on the Tuesday where the whole of Brisbane could, could enjoy it. Um, but then really, it's last year then. <laughs> and, and and you and you start you still got to move on to the next phase. I mean that that's what you do. The footy teaches you all the time. I mean one week goes, you learn what you can, you review, and then you move on to the next the next challenge, the next contest. And while while the suit this next season is six months away, and players go and do what they do. I mean, you, what yeah? If there's a bottom line thing you think after you've won a premiership is well, every other team's going to improve. Can we improve just as much as the other teams? So that's kind of the attitude you're taking. You know, on the same point. I mean, we know the following season it's going to be no team, no wins, no losses. That's the way the season starts. The scoreboard's nil-nil apiece at the start of games. Like, success is about what happens from this point onwards, not what has happened recently. And uh, that was always my attitude. And I think that was the team embraced that general concept. Doesn't mean you're going to win every week, but I don't think that playing group magnificently led by Michael Voss and uh, Lynchy and Brown, you know, they were, they were a wonderful team, but they had a great ability, I think, to, to live that, to live the moment, Play the contest, do our best, learn best we can on what's just happened, and then and then think about next week's game. So I don't think I was, and certainly uh, the players were ever thinking about uh, the last Saturday in September until you get that far. And 2002 couldn't have been a bigger contrast weather-wise. It was freezing cold. It was wet. You, yep. were, you were strong favourites against Collingwood, but they really took it to you all day, didn't you? I mean... My standout is, is Voss and just how strong he was. And then, of course, there was the lips of lethal. So you were mic'd up for the day by Fox Footy, which was fairly revolutionary in those days. And you know, famously, you said, tell Acker to get to the front of Lynchy, not the back. And, and he did exactly that. Go and tell Acker, run to the front of Lynchy. Run to the front, not to the back. Back to Brad Scott, around the corner, to the full forward area. Lynch can't manufacture a mark. Yeah, well, the lips of lethal was, uh, I, th- I think I mainly did. I thought this might discipline me a little bit to actually keep control of myself because I sort of know there's a microphone there. I always think if there's a microphone there, Hutto, you know there's a microphone there. But maybe I forgot about it uh, during during the game. But um, and it also uh, said not much happens in the coach's box, really. It's pretty boring viewing when, <laughs> yes. you, uh, when you think about it. But 
Collingwood were really good that day. Yeah, no, we. I thought our 2002 group was probably the best best team we had for them. You know, in a general sense. Yep. But on grand final day, we weren't great, and Collingwood were really good. And yeah, the conditions were difficult too, so that maybe helped the, you know, help Collingwood rather than helped us. But uh, no, we uh, we hung on and, and won. But uh, no, there was nothing in that game. Uh, I, I, it's funny that that was the one grand final. I was almost, and this never do this. I was almost disappointed in the end that we hadn't played that well. Right. And I remember thinking to myself, what, how can you be that way? I mean, but but it was something in my psyche. I don't know. Even I thought we should win. Or, and yep. I'd, I'd fell for it. And uh, and I, I remember, remember the Saturday night, I had trouble being dr- jovial and really joining in the spirit of the things. I was, as I said, I was almost narked that we didn't play well. <laughs> Uh, so maybe from my point of view, that was a good uh, starting point for 2003. Oh, that's crazy, isn't it? Yeah, it probably it goes to yeah, just your, yeah. what your character is, I suppose. But 2003 then, you started well, had some struggles along the season. I think Vossi at one stage internally said he couldn't trust everyone. and so. But you got it all together. You won a classic preliminary final against Sydney at Homebush. And then you had the famous fitness test for Nigel Lappin going into grand final day at, at Albert Park. Well, 2003, to a degree, we limped in to the finals I think we finished third and of course we played Collingwood who finished second uh, at the in the first final yeah. at the MCG and I remember uh, James Clement was playing on Michael Voss and Voss he had a degenerate knee issue that was really struggling you know he was really struggling to get power and acceleration and Clement kept running away from him so we lost the game and you almost thought our great Michael Voss, gee, I don't know how much we can get out of him for the rest of the final series. It was uh, it was probably, uh, it was almost later that night. I think it was might have been Craig Lambert suggested, again, John Bartlett, the orthopaedic surgeon. Just ask John about it, and along with our medical people. And John thought, well, maybe we can in- inject his knee joint so he just doesn't feel the discomfort. It's not, like, structurally it's okay. It's just a bit, it's a bit sore. So eventually we uh, embarked on that, which meant uh, Vossi was able to produce you know, something near his best when it looked like we were going to be without him. Uh, but after losing that first final, we uh, we got over the top of the Crows the following week and then, of course, uh, leading into three-quarter time uh, against the Swans uh, in Sydney in the preliminary final. We went fronted, but they had a really strong third quarter. We, uh, we walked out at three-quarter time and we looked like we were fading. And our, our team just had an incredible last quarter. Martin Pike, as much as anyone, I thought Pike he had a, an outstanding quarter and, and we ended up winning that by, by five goals. So Was so that one of, of your sudden, best coaching speeches? I think the boys do talk about that, that you were able to, you, you talked about the journey and the, and the achievement that was still there for you. Oh, well, they, who knows? I, I'm, not, I'm not a great believer in words or any matter, Hutto, when all of a sudden the performance followed the words. But I, Fair I think that was, the, that was the one time where I, I, we did look forward. I said, listen, we've got a chance to be going for three in a row. Yeah, it's a hard achievement to do. We've got a chance, depending upon what we do from this point on. But so if it actually gave the, the players a, a little bit of impetus, I'm, I'm glad. And I know a couple have said that. But they, they had a great fighting spirit, that team. They, you, you had a lot of ability, but they had a great fighting spirit. And as it turned out, that last quarter was outstanding. And then while we were limping in a little bit, and you'll talk, I'll mention the Nigel Lap, and then we had four really good quarters in the grand final. So the last five quarters of 2003 were outstanding. But as you mentioned, late in that preliminary final uh, was Sean Hart. They ran into Nigel Lappin and fractured his ribs. 
and and ba- a bad fracture. I, I saw Nigel on the uh, getting out of a car. His wife dropped him off at the club on the Tuesday after that Saturday night game, and seriously, he could hardly get out of the car because I think anyone who's had cracked ribs knows that yeah, for a few days at least, you feel like you're going to die. I mean, they're just so painful, and uh, you think, well, no chance he can play. But our, our medical team were, were really innovative. They didn't, didn't give up. They tried things. They... <laughs> They consulted the pain management specialist at the Wesley Hospital in, in Brisbane who thought, well, maybe, again, as we did to Michael Voss's knee joint, maybe we can deaden his whole rib cage. Takes a lot of anaesthetic to do that, you would think, wouldn't you, Hutto? So, <laughs> yes. uh, so anyway, uh, Nigel wanted to give it a go. and But again, we, we had to find out. So in the fitness test the night before the game, uh, he had to get physical contact to make sure that he was injected up. Yeah, but could he take physical contact? And he survived the fitness test amazingly and then obviously then then about an hour before the game it was interesting Nigel said he was injected up again he said listen I'm not feeling any pain but I can't seem to take deep breaths so uh, I remember Peter Stanton who was our, our physiotherapist and one of the you know, key medical staff said we've got to just wait to see what he says eventually he'll either say yes I'm okay or no I'm not and that was one occasion we were prepared to accept Nigel Lappin's judgment on it. And then eventually, of course, about three quarters an hour before the game, and Chris Scott had bad groin injuries at the time, but he was still going to play if Nigel didn't. So he was stripped and ready to play. And Nigel just then about 45 minutes said, yep, I reckon I'm ready to go. Okay, <laughs> off you go. And what what turned out, Hutto, is post-game, they discovered that he had a slight punctured lung. I'm pretty sure we punctured his lung in the fitness test on the Friday night. Right. Because like, there's really serious punctured lung, I guess, and there's slightly minor ones. And he had to stay down to Melbourne for a day or two before he flew. But incredible courage. I mean, Nigel Lappin is uh, almost introverted in some ways as a person. But the courage that he uh, embarked on that day. And I mean, if fitness tests fail, coaches get blamed. We just get shot, in a sense, for, for actually playing injured players. But the Nigel Lappin experience that year and the, and the Michael Voss one that I, that I just mentioned, I mean, the the ability of players to uh, cope with discomfort. You know, you can do it on grand final day and no other day. I reckon there's something about grand final day, the last day of the year, and we hear with other teams and other injuries. I'm sure players have got through on grand final day with a problem or an injury they could not possibly do any other day of the year. But the grand final day adrenaline, the last game of the year, it's amazing what, uh, what physical adversity you can cope with. Too good, you smashed them. So surely you were satisfied with winning three in a row. Were you satisfied on that Saturday night? Yeah, no, I, I was determined to actually enjoy the 2003 <laughs> Saturday night because I was such a humbug the, uh, the after 2002 in my own mind. I was determined to uh, to enjoy the night, which we did, and we had the same cycle. We, we enjoy it with our Melbourne fans on the Sunday, come back to Brisbane, do another street parade, and, and that was outstanding. I must say, uh, we got the team together in Wednesday after 2003. And I thought a few of our players were being a bit uppity. There was just a little bit of not being humble about them. On that Wednesday after the grand final, this was nothing to do with 2004. I just had a fairly harsh words. Okay, we won three in a row. That's great. 
but that doesn't mean we start taking liberties and being disrespectful to opponents or people in general. So a lot of the players have actually enunciated that was that was probably my most aggressive <laughs> conversation with them, and it was uh, four days after winning a grand final. And 2004, losing one as a coach, how did you cope with that or how did that feel or were you philosophical about it? Well, yeah, I mean, we, we were in pretty good shape going to that year. And obviously, the, the way the sequence of events worked, having to go to Melbourne and play the Plymouth final that we did, that we weren't allowed to play in the Gab. I mean, it was just stuff that was annoying. But anyway, we so I'll always be aggrieved about some of the controllables by other people yep. that went against us. But so I'll, uh, that'll, I'll live with that for the rest of my life. But uh, but that aside, I mean, we, we were in the game until about halfway through the third quarter. And then all of a sudden, Port were coming stronger and then... I don't think whatever I said at three-quarter times was probably going to make any difference or anything, but I don't think I did it very well either. Right. I almost sensed that we were drowning and we were sinking. You know, we'd run out of energy. And that sort of played out in the last quarter. And so in a sense of, uh, of, of losing, it was just the gradual process. Had a, it wasn't a moment where all of a sudden we were a winning chance. Like our winning chances were, were remote at three-quarter time. By halfway through the last quarter, they were you know, largely gone. So I guess you uh, consoled yourself with the fact you'd won the three in the row. But, you know, there's only four in a row, one in the VFL-AFL, once by Collingwood back in the 20s or something. And, you know, to win the fourth one, you've got to win the first three. Yes. So I look at that as an opportunity lost. We could have done something that was so special in the football world by winning four in a row. But Port Adelaide were too good for us. We just weren't able to sort of nail the last premiership. But... I feel enormous pride in that group that it was good enough to to win three in a row and still get there in the fourth year. When Lee's coaching career finally came to its conclusion at the end of the 2008 season, his contribution to AFL football and indeed the history of the MCG was far from over. He rejoined Channel 7 becoming an integral part of their Friday night footy coverage with legendary broadcasters Bruce McAvaney and Dennis Committee. And not surprisingly, Lee's no-nonsense practical approach behind the microphone earned him much acclaim. Yeah, the only thing I'm conscious of in commentary is don't feel like you know more than the people you're talking to. There's an element in modern commentary because stats, there's so many stats, I mean, champion data provides so much stuff. And don't talk terminology that's in club. That's the only thing I, I thought about when I did my media. Try and kind of explain the game in my role. I, not, I don't call the game. I just try and help whatever special comments type role. But, but yeah, try and explain the game, but not in a manner that uh, confuses people. Try and simplify it if you can, from that, it's just being yourself, I think, Hutto, and uh, and whatever comes out, comes out. Trust, I think, Hutto. I mean, I'd trust Lee as much as I'd trust, you know, anyone, including my family. I, I feel like he's just that person. Um, I'd met him before I'd broadcast with him. I'd, I, you know, through horse racing a bit, and Gary Willits, I had dinner with him and Gary Willits, uh, and their wives uh, many years ago, uh, and, and saw Lee at the races a bit, and, you know, we, yep, 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 but obviously I looked up to him and when I first started to work with him, you know, I, you know, God blimey, it's a bit like Wayne Carey, you know, those certain people that, but Lee particularly, it was just, and Blighty's similar for me, but, but Lee was somebody I, you know, I guess I wanted to get his respect. I wanted him to respect me. I wanted him to feel like I knew what I was doing. And when I feel like that happened and hopefully it, I'm being right with this. He, um, it meant a lot to me. It really did, and I, I, 
It's very hard. It's intangible in a way, but I have enormous affection for him. And as I said, it's 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 trust. You know, he's pragmatic. I lo- love talking to him about football. He can get to the bottom line quicker than anyone I know. He gets rid of a lot of the noise, and um, he's um, he's he's got a great football mind, and he's a practical person. But um, I know him well, and uh, I'm, I'm I'm you know I am a he's a great friend to me, and I certainly feel like that to him. So, but I think it's that one word that I said at the start: trust. And you you had a pretty special relationship with Bruce, haven't you, over that time? Well, yes. The Friday nights at Channel Seven uh, when I was working with uh, Bruce and Dennis, uh, Dennis coming up in in the in like in the media world. When I used to walk into that commentary box and Bruce was there and Dennis Cometti was there, I used to think to myself, well, at least I'm in the peak of this part of the world, you know, <laughs> yeah. because they're such uh, well known uh, have have been for uh, so many decades, really. So uh, so basically, uh, I mean, Bruce was lived in Adelaide and I was always living in Brisbane, so. We'd both stay at the uh, Hyatt in uh, Melbourne, and so we'd, we'd get the car down to the footy every Friday night if it was a Melbourne game. So Bruce would trot out the myriad of stuff that he'd actually uh, had in his mind. I mean, the preparation you guys do just amazes me, uh, Hutto. I mean, the calling art is just just fantastic. So much different than just those of us who just add on a word or two here and there, but just the preparation involved, uh, it's not just turning up and doing the job. And, and Bruce, if anyone, uh, epitomised how much preparation goes into anything he does whether it's football or racing or Olympics. And one last one on your Brisbane your Brisbane team. Have any of them had the temerity to take the mickey out of you in front of you? Every now and then, a few of them have taken the mickey out of you uh, when you haven't been there. But have anyone, <laughs> anyone done it in, in your presence? Plenty would have. Um, the high-pitched voice that I was uh, born with. I mean, I, I used to love John Kennedy. He could stand in the middle of Glenferry Oval. You'd hear him in the dressing rooms almost. But I, I wasn't a very good coach in that regard because the squeaky voice didn't wasn't very loud when I tried to yell. So everyone's going to uh, make fun of my uh, high-pitched voice uh, that's just <laughs> so uh, and many other things I, uh, I had that I'm probably not even aware of the MCG story of the one and only Lee Matthews a big thanks to Lee for sharing his magical moments and to the legendary coach David Parkin and commentator Bruce McAvaney As always, we greatly appreciate the use of the wonderful audio from AFL Digital, including Fox Footy's Lips of Lethal. Just another reminder that if you're enjoying the series, don't forget to subscribe and leave us a review. We hope you enjoy the build-up to this year's AFL Grand Final, and of course, we look forward to the return of cricket and crowds, and we can meet you once again at the G.